Welcome to the Religious Studies Project, listeners and indeed viewers. My name is Christopher Carter, and I'm joined as ever by David Robertson. We are presented in association with the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. And today we're bringing you a fantastic audio-visual feast. It's David Robertson speaking with Eileen Barker, Mujan Momen, Joseph Webster, and Tristan Sturm on millennialism and violence, question mark. And this was recorded where, David? At the Sensan Conference um on millennialism and violence in Bedford recently. Perfect. So I'll pass over now. Take it away, David. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Um, I'm here today in the grounds of the Panacea Museum in sunny Bedford uh, for the inaugural SENSAM conference um, on the subject of millenarian groups and violence. I'm joined today by Mujan Momin, by Joseph Webster, by Eileen Barker and by Tristan Sturm. And we're going to discuss uh, the issues around millenarianism, millennialism and violence. Um, and all of the talks from this conference have been streamed and there'll be a link to that uh, below. Um, but just to get the ball rolling, I'm going to ask, what is it we're talking about? I mean, millennialism, millenarianism, apocalypticism... Um, are these different terms? What do they mean? Uh, Joe, maybe you could uh, get the ball rolling on that. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's an interesting question. I'm not so sure that I have a clear answer, possibly because a clear answer doesn't exist. I think these terms have been used for a very long time interchangeably. Sometimes that's because of potentially sloppy scholarship on uh, behalf of those who are using the terms. On the other hand, I think uh, part of the answer might be that these terms, particularly millenarianism and millennialism, being to some extent uh, interchangeable. Uh, the OED, which isn't the final word in these conversations, uh, but still, nevertheless, the OED does uh, define these terms as uh, synonyms. The way that uh, millenarianism is used in anthropology, the discipline that I come from, tends to see uh, millennialism as uh, more distinctly Christian than millenarianism. Millenarianism being treated as uh, a broader term that has uh, resonances with uh, the cargo cult literature and the ghost dance literature. However, again, that's not universally true. Some uh, scholars within anthropology do use millennialism as a way to refer to cargo cults and the ghost dance. So uh, whilst uh, I don't think there's any clear definitional answer, my uh, assumption would be that the best way to proceed is is how the groups uh, themselves use these terms, and they don't actually tend to use either of those terms for themselves. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's take it from there. Yeah, uh, um, I, I would add to that um, apocalypticism, and I think we can think about apocalypticism versus millennial millennialism, which is the distinction I would use as two sides of the same coin. The apocalypse or apocalypticism, meaning unveiling, happens before the millennium, a thousand years, or a period of time after which the world ends. So I would understand it that way. I would teach that to my students. I would say, um, you know, apocalypticism is the events before um, the, the sort of revelation or the, the end of the world, and the renewal is the millennium. Um, that's how I would, I would understand it. And I think using apocalypticism versus millennialism is important in certain cases. Apocalypticism is useful, of course, for various secular movements who don't believe in 
a renewal, a, a new world, right? Uh, whether that would come from climate change, um, you know, Trumpism potentially for some individuals, mm. uh, uh, and for others equally Barack Obama, right? Um, that doesn't have necessarily a Christian or any religious over, over, overlay over it. I think we can still use the term apocalypticism. Um, and I think many social theorists do to talk about things like climate change um, and, and, and um, the severity uh, of events and the series of events that would happen from that. So that's what I would have to say. Um, we, we're often, when we hear about apocalypticism, millennialism, we're often hearing about, you know, these cults, these controversial kind of new religious movements. Um, Eileen, maybe you'd speak to this. Is there, is there some necessary connection between new religious movements and apocalyptic millennial thinking? No. <laughs> then, then why, do, why is it so often connected in the public mind? Well, it's quite frequent that millennial groups or millenarian groups or apocalyptic groups will be termed cults. And cults um, sort of technically usually mean some kind of religious or non-religious movement that's in tension with, with society in some ways. Um, the sort of classic division between the cult and the sect, which are in tension with society, and the denomination and the church, which aren't. Uh, but technically, that, that's one thing. Just generally in popular parlance, to say something is a cult means it's a religion I don't like. <laughs> and it's not really very much more than that. I mean, I often get asked, is it a real religion, a genuine religion, or is it a cult? And you've just got to say, well, what do you mean by a cult? And one man's or one woman's cult is another person's religion. Nobody says, I belong to a cult. Not seriously. They might say it as a joke or mm -hmm. in self-defense. Mm -hmm. Now, some of these movements about which people um, put the label, on which people put the label of cult, are millenarian. But most of them are not. Well, I wouldn't like to say how many are and how many aren't, but the two don't necessarily go together, except that it's more likely that the, the millenarian group sort of subgroup of cult. Mm -hmm. But you get millenarianism in denominations and in church, mm -hmm. if you're just looking at the tension of society. So it goes either way. So you've got to be terribly clear what you're talking about. And sometimes such categories are useful, but quite often they're just obscure. Mm, indeed. So say what you're talking about. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to bear in mind that even, say, Christianity itself, when it first arose, if you read the Gospels, you'll see there that they are talking about how Christianity is fulfilling prophecy. So therefore, Christianity is actually a millenarian movement mm. in Judaism and was probably regarded as a cult by other Jews. So we're talking about a, a, a history of religion developing gradually from being a cult to being a sect to being a religion. Mm. Um, how important is prophecy? Um, is this an essential aspect here? I think so, almost by definition, because you, you're expecting something to happen. Mm. So you have some kind of knowledge that's come from somewhere. Now, it might just be in your own little brain, but usually there's somebody who says, or a book, or something can be read as saying. So there's some sort of saying what's going to happen in the future. It's future-oriented. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but it's not entirely about the future. Um, oh no. Yeah. No, I'm not saying that. No, no, it's, it's a but good. It's a good in. It's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the key aspects to uh, whether we're talking about millenarian movements or apocalyptic movements or uh, millennialism is the way in which um, temporality and time are really central to what's going on, and crucially, I think the way in which. Um, parts of time that we customarily think is very distinct actually end up collapsing into each other and becoming conflated. So the present being seen as a very uh, unique moment when uh, prophecy is being fulfilled, when things that were said of the future are coming to pass right now, but also that uh, the present is seen as uh, deeply resonant with uh, an ancient uh, an ancient past. Look at the way in which... Um, the Christian groups, for instance, that are most dispensational groups like uh, the Brethren, the Jehovah's Witnesses, some Baptist groups certainly look at uh, today's age as uh, morally bankrupt and immediately reach back into the Old Testament past for examples of the same, Sodom and Gomorrah, the days of Noah, uh, the days of the Tower of Babel. And immediately what that does is it transforms the present into something that is not only future-orientated, but also deeply indebted to and is seen as a replaying of ancient past biblical events. Mm. Of course, the Abrahamic faiths, is um, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, have a linear view of history, that there's a past, we're in a present, and there is a future and they're promising something about the future. But we should remember that a lot of new religions, cults, sects, traditional religions, are cyclical, mm. and they see time in this sort of birth, death, rebirth, etc. Now, sometimes it's an upward spiral. Sometimes you go through various ages. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not just sort of straight lineal like they are in the Abrahamic, which lend themselves more to apocalyptic visions. Mm-hmm because there's something happening. But within Hinduism, you can get you know, the, the different ages, which mm-hmm. can be very different. And the new age, indeed. Um, there's something very fundamental that's changing to, in society, right. which is what's expected in these kind of movements. Yeah. Um, I, I would agree. But I also, I think, prior to, say, uh, the Enlightenment, prior to um, the... Uh, you know, um, Hobbes or someone like that just prior, uh, you would see, I think, a cyclical idea within Christianity still. I think I'm taking this from Reinhard Koselick, and he says, you know, the ideas of the apocalypse didn't really emerge in everyday life of Christians until really the period of the Enlightenment, when the idea of progress and that, you know, the Kantian idea that because the past is different, the future must also be different. And the, so we get this idea that the apocalypse isn't part of a cycle, a scaled-up everyday cycle of seasons that we would see with a lot of individuals. So I think there is a change actually happening around the end of the 16th century where we're moving out of even a kind of Christian cyclicalism to a more linear idea of the future. And I would add to that that I think now the future is becoming more important, and it's been studied, I think, across disciplines, is becoming this this, this tag term um, that we're trying to theorize now. And I, I think here of Susan Harding, for example, um, who talks about memories of the future. And she says that, you know, um, the, uh, that there, there's a, that the future is a kind of memory. We have, 
we have an idea of the past, and those are kind of memories as well. Outside of history, we're kind of selective about the memories that we want to bring to the present and give, our, give continuity to the way things are in the same way that we do that with the future. We kind of know how the future is going to play out. We have a sort of select, uh, selectivity of ideas. You know, there's a certain paths that we are pretty sure are more likely to happen than others, and we go down those paths. And prophecy functions in a similar way. It tries to close off the way... Uh, future could go, right? It, it sort of says, well, this is the likely space that the future will go, and so it's a closing off of the future. And we have a kind of memory of the future. We remember ideas from the future. Um, we all do this. We do this with our jobs, how we foresee the way our life is going to go, and they more or less do take place the way we probably thought that they would, given you know a certain level of, uh, uh, of, of, of difference there. And so um, I would say that about time. Um, and I also... I mean, so I, I would, there's a, a book that I really like. It's called The Past is a Foreign Country. And he says that. He says that there's a kind of, um, that we're, we're selective about the, our past. But I would say the future is also this foreign country where we're selective about ideas of the future that we want to bring to give meaning to our, our present. And, you know, August, you know, St. Augustine said this as well. You know, um, you know uh, he had said that there's no such thing as the past or the future. He said there's only the present past, the present present, and the present future. Um, and he's referring to that kind of presentism, I think, that exists across religions and everyday life, and that's really only where we exist. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's, it's an interesting and very important part of, of millennial thinking and prophetic thinking, it, is that it places the individual kind of right at this axis point of history. Um, and as you say, you know, it's, it's the, the, the memories of, of History is a construction of or a narrative construction leading to this point, and you have various futures branching out. And something about kind of apocalyptic and millennialism, when it when it becomes involved in violence, particularly, is that sometimes it's seen that in order for the future to go one way, there has to be some sort of violent or cataclysmic change. Which brings us to the issue of violence. Then, I mean, is is there a necessary uh, connection between kind of millenarianism and violence? Um, or is that only in the sort of popular imagination? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I see, <laughs> genuinely, I see nothing within millenarianism that makes it essentially violent. And I think the the other important point to make is that not only do we other millenarian groups by often assuming that they are violent, but we uh, normalize uh, ourselves, the secular, the non-religious, the mainstream as something that is somehow uh, essentially non-violent, right? So we, we, we make uh, cults and sects and millenarianism essentially violent, and we make the mainstream somehow essentially non-violent. And I think uh, both are completely uh, false. The evidence just does not stack up. And of course, we're sitting here at the Panacea Society, which was a mm. millenarian movement that was not at all violent. So, uh, and in fact, probably the vast majority of, mm. of millenarian movements are not violent. Uh, it, it requires a certain set of circumstances to, to lead a millenarian movement to violence. And the vast majority of them don't have that set of circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, um, Interested in the way we're using the word violence here. I think we're talking about overt, coercive types of violence, but I think discourse or language can be violent as well. I think certain 
other small V firms of violence take place as well. Um, and they take place outside of, they're not exclusive or endemic to millennial movements. Mm -hmm. They happen in everyday life. Um, and I'm speaking here of a kind of power that we exact and all sorts of things. And millennial movements, apocalyptic movements are a different kind of normative discourse and they challenge dominant normative discourses that Joe was just talking about, right? In a sense, they're kind of doing a violence. They're changing the way, they're trying to change the way we think about the world. Mm -hmm. Our normative way we think about the world is not the right way. It's not the right, the absolute truth. It's truth because more people believe it than often in millennial and apocalyptic movements. So, but that, that doesn't mean that there's not, you know, a kind of violence that's going on there. There is. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, yeah. I'd like to add that a lot of the movements are actually pacifist, mm -hmm. and they work hard for pacifism. And it's very interesting that today, while this is being recorded, April the 6th, the Jehovah's Witnesses are, perhaps it's already happened, mm -hmm. being threatened with entire extinction from Russia because they are absolutely nonviolent. They're in prison in places like South Korea because they are their conscientious objection. They won't kill they are prepared to be killed. They were killed in Auschwitz, for example, unlike the Jews and the homosexuals and the gypsies who were going to suffer anyway. The Jehovah's Witnesses could have said, no, we'll obey the state, and they didn't. They preferred to be killed rather mm -hmm. than this mm -hmm. because they just refused to do certain things. And the group that you were talking about today also tried to be pacifist. And so, I mean, it's not just that they're not violent. Mm -hmm. They will work against sometimes, but of course some are violent with a capital w, um, V. Um, yes, the, the group that I was talking about today was uh, historically the, the Barbies of Iran. They're, they're a, a precursor of what is today the Baha'i faith. But in mid-19th century uh, Iran, they were uh, a group that became very popular, very rap spread very rapidly. And the leader of this group um, worked very hard to defuse the violent uh, possibilities because he, he claimed to be the Mahdi and people were expecting the Mahdi to come and, and lead an army to victory. Uh, so they were expecting a violent result from, from the Mahdi coming. And the Bab worked very hard to defuse that potential for violence. And really, one of the main factors that eventually did lead to violence uh, as a result of this movement was the fact that the Bab was removed from <laughs> his uh, ability to lead his his um, followers because he was imprisoned in, in a fortress right up in the northwest corner of, of the country uh, and therefore cut off from his followers and, mm. and prevented from uh, from leading his followers in the way that he wanted to. Did you want to add something there, Joel? Well, I mean, this is an issue that we've been discussing throughout the day. Um, I think when we speak about violence, when we speak about the uh, way in which pacifism within new religious movements is often ignored, uh, I think there or is... seen as dangerous and violent. Indeed. Mm -hmm. um, yes, where, where, the refusal, where the refusal to fight becomes a type of extremism. I think connected to this is the way in which um, in some cases scholars and other cases political uh, entities, governmental agents, uh, try and uh, explain away millenarian movements rather than uh, explain them. And I guess by that I mean that they have a tendency to look for uh, external uh, causes of behavior, um, explanations which wholesale refuse to um, 
countenance the possibility that the local native account emerging from within the religious movement in question might have something to contribute to an understanding of why that movement is doing what it's doing or in some cases not doing what it's not doing, for instance, fighting. So if we, mm-hmm. if we try and, as scholars, begin to break down the idea that religious movements are saying and doing one thing and... On the other hand, uh, our job is to analyze them in ways that uh, are alien to that movement and external to that movement. If we begin to break down that um, process of explanation, I think we might begin to have a more fertile understanding of uh, what new religious movements are, what millennial movements are, because we can learn things from them in ways that very often we simply refuse to acknowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean... Um that's something I talk about a lot, especially I think it's it's part of the heritage of religious studies to be talking about beliefs and particularly sort of deviant beliefs and sometimes going as far as pathologizing these kind of ways of viewing the world. But I mean, your work, I know, is talking about things that are very relevant to today. And you mentioned Trump earlier on. Um, and when these kind of um, political movements, for instance, suddenly start to engage with other mm. um millenarian uh, kind of ideas it, it, it i think it, it shocks people um when they actually realize well maybe these there's there's more um this is more normal than they perhaps realize yeah i think there's a couple things going on here right let's start with trump trump's um one of his main um you know security advisors steve bannon has his own millennial perspective something he calls the fourth turning he gets this from a series of mm. books on generations um, which is a kind of secular apocalypse that the world is getting bad. Capitalism is, in destruction, is being destroyed. Um, you know, traditional culture is being broken down and he needs to take action to do something about that. In other ways, some millennial groups do align themselves with larger political groups, right? Um, and maybe their action is something as simple and normative as voting. Um, it's not really taking action. In fact, the, many of the groups that I study, Christian Zionists, are fatalistic. Um, they're pacifists in the sense that they don't actually take any kind of physical action, but they might vote. And in, we might even argue that doing nothing sometimes is still taking a side, right? So the groups that I um, study, the pilgrims, the Christian Zionist pilgrims in the United, from the United States um, going to Israel and Palestine, they're not doing anything to contribute to the conflicts that I write about directly, but indirectly they are insofar as they support a tourism industry. They support a particular political ideology, both in Israel and in America, that might actually take physical violence or, or take the form of physical violence. So in a sense, um, that kind of, they, you know, they're, they're pacifists, but they're still involved or part of the assemblage of violence, I would argue. So when... Uh when violence does arise, then what is different? What what happens there? What is um, what is the process by which um, a group minority or majority um, becomes violent? I mean, there are well known cases. Obviously, Waco seems to be the sort of paradigmatic um, ver- uh, account today at the, at the conference. But you know, Heaven's Gate as well, um, Jonestown. Um, what what is it that that, that causes violence in these um, unusual cases? Well, they're all different. Um, part of our job as scholars is to look at the particulars, 
in order to try and compare them and see the similarities and differences and pull out some of the threads and similarities. But there aren't a certain number of similarities and the other things are different. There, there are groups, there are sort of categories, there, there are clusters, bundles of things that seem to go together. And there's the sort of tension that Joe was talking about earlier um, between the internal uh, reasons and the external reasons. And Stuart Wright um, had a paper today which talked about this and the importance of seeing the interaction between the two. And you can't predict by doing one or the other. Mm -hmm. It's seeing how the two react on each other. And these can lead to spirals, what um, criminologists call deviance amplification. Each side does something that's slightly bad in the other side's view and gives the other side permission to be slightly worse. Mm. And so it grows. And then wham! And Waco is an example of that. But Waco is very, very unusual, thank goodness. There are cases where you can see this writ large and they're easy to see and therefore we focus on them because mm -hmm. they give us a kind of template or an idea against which we can measure the other movements which are not like that. And I think it's very important that we keep remembering that they're not like that and look at the other ones and um, take those into our calculation as well. Yeah, I think that's important. I think the reason why Waco or perhaps another example would be Omshin Rico becomes paradigmatic is uh, because there is um, some sense in which we've already come to the subjective study of millenarian movements having decided that they are somehow profoundly different mm -hmm. to religion at large and therefore by a process of scholarly selection bias we uh, simply um, focus on those cases which uh, fit the paradigm. I mean this is the classic case of normal science, right? That we, we simply look for evidence which fits a pre-existing paradigm and mm -hmm. conveniently or in some cases very inconveniently ignore all the other uh, counterexamples uh, and the, uh, the theories uh, or in some cases prejudices that we have of these groups are uh, wrongly reinforced. Uh, and another consequence of this is that, as Eileen says, many of the groups that are committed to nonviolence or um, uh, don't even feel the need to commit themselves to nonviolence because they are so inherently nonviolent uh, that that commitment doesn't need to be made, that those groups are simply ignored. I mean, many people mm -hmm. um, don't uh, focus on those groups because uh, they simply don't fit uh, the prejudices that we seem to have within the scholarship. I think we have to make the distinction between violence that is done to a group and violence that the group does. And nearly all the violence that is done, again with the capital V, um, by the groups is to their own members. Some are done to people that they know personally who they don't like. And very, very few are done to strangers. Mm -hmm. Om Shinrikyo is an example but one of the very few, the Manson family, is another one. But mostly the harm is internal rather than externally directed. Most of them expect that God or something will happen, the apocalypse, the Armageddon or what have you, will happen. Now, they might have to be the midwife 
And what's quite another quite interesting question that we haven't touched on yet is what happens when prophecy fails, when they expect this great big change. Mm. But I think it's important to remember that very, very few go around killing people. That tends to be the traditional major religions, the churches and the denominations who've got the money and the armies. Now, of course, it might be different if they get hold of sarin gas or something, but this hasn't happened very much. That ties very much into what you were saying before about, um, you know, the, the, the importance. We have to generalise to some degree to make com- cross comparisons, but we have to remain aware of the important differences all the time. And um, a lot of the time, these groups that we're comparing, the actual violence that we're talking about is very, very different. And you also have cases like, for instance, Heaven's Gate, um, where there's very little evidence of coercion there. I mean, if you watch the exit videos that the members shot, for instance, they're going quite happily into that situation with their eyes fully open. It's only from an external point of view that it can be described as violence at all, largely because of going into it um, or looking at it with this kind of brainwashing mentality that, you know, um, earlier discourses on new religions um, bought into, which is very much discredited now. And they were only harming themselves. But, exactly. of course, Joe ought to jump down at me immediately because they didn't see themselves as harming. Of course. They saw themselves as being transitionized or whatever the word was. <laughs> Uh, going to the level above the human, yeah. uh, Teller. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point, that what we have here is, uh, to bring it back to your question about failed prophecy, uh, and this does link to violence, whether or not we can genuinely point to groups like Heaven's Gate or uh, classic historical case studies like uh, the Millerites, um, Festinger's uh, famous book about uh, cognitive dissonance using uh, the seekers, um, even if we leave violence in the equation or if we take it out, there is still the enduring question about does prophecy for these groups ever fail at all? Uh, thinking Always about, does. well, I'm, <laughs> see, I'm not so sure about that. When I, when I think about Heaven's Gate, I think about the fact that they uh, ended their lives and um, as far as we're aware, as far as they're aware, uh, made a successful journey to where they were going. The, same, I think, can be said with uh, the Seekers and uh, Mrs. Keach, the idea that uh, the prophecy did not fail, the floods didn't uh, fail to arrive, it wasn't a failure, it was them successfully spreading enough light to call uh, the floods off. The Seventh-day Adventists did not um, explain away a failure of Millerite prophecy. It seems to me that uh, Ellen White simply realized that Miller's prophecy was correct, but that the revolution began in heaven, not on earth. So, I don't know, I'm intrigued to hear your pushback on that. In what cases does prophecy really fail? <laughs> well, there are some groups that have said, oops, we got it wrong. There was, what's, I can't remember his name. The, the man who said, um, it was May sometime, about four or five years ago, radio something. Harold right? Camping. Harold Camping, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, now he said, oh dear. I, well, the, after a couple reported, of attempts. Yeah. yeah, after a couple of attempts. And at one time he said, God got it wrong, according to our newspaper headline. Which is one of the techniques mentioned in Vestinger's books, actually, that the transmission was garbled, you know, reception issues. You could get the reception wrong. You can have it happening in the spirit world, mm-hmm. like it did with Joanna Southcott and lots of others. You can have people saying, well, because we did this, we stopped the terrible thing happening. Mm-hmm. Or you can say, because they didn't do this, 
God didn't come yet. We weren't ready. We didn't sort of listen to the Messiah telling us what to do. There are a whole lot of different ways out. But there are those. There was this chap again, I can't remember. I want to say Garland. He was a Chinese chap in America. And he said, I'll come out and apologize if nothing's happened. And he came out and apologized. <laughs> this is about 10 years ago. Does anybody remember? He was Chinese or he was Oriental of some kind. And I want to say Garland, but I don't think that's <laughs> well. Right. Hopefully, one of the one of the um, uh, one of the listeners can can uh, tell us who it is in the I'm comments. Sure they will. I hope they I do. Uh, yes, <laughs> excellent. I, I, I wanted to uh, sort of add to this conversation about small v versus big v violence. I think one way is in one way in which small v violence takes place is uh, Harold Camping is a good example. A lot of people, thousands of people, sold their houses. They went up in debt. They expected this to happen. That had a tremendous amount of violence on their families, on their lives. They moved into forests. They bought bunkers. This is a form of violence, right? I think another form of violence that wasn't really talked about at the conference was spatial violence. The way that these groups imagine spaces in particular ways, homogenize spaces, map spaces, understand whole groups of people in homogenized ways, and treat them in certain ways. And some of these groups are aligned with state power. Sometimes the state sees them as a threat and disciplines them with large V violence that we, you know, we see. Um, and sometimes uh, they align themselves with the state in large V violence. Um, by their voting for them, for their interests, we're seeing this at the moment. You know, Donald Trump is doing all sorts of violence to other, you know, to homosexuals, to um, uh, women's rights over their body, these sorts of things, aligning themselves with larger millennial movements like Christian Zionists, like premillennial dispensationalists, right, that are doing violence to all sorts of other people within the electorate. And also in terms of foreign policy, the way that Americans understand Muslims, the way they understand the war in Iraq, right? These are all contributing factors. I think maybe the mistake then is to look at just the millennial movement. You have to see how the effects that they have outside of their movement, right? Their social effects. Um, look at Marxism, for example. Also, I mean, this is a good example. So, or uh, uh, another point maybe I want to make is the difference between belief and practice, right? So we have textual beliefs, we have written documents for a lot of these groups, and then we have the way people actually act, which are two different things. Um, uh, you know, um, would someone say that Stalin was a true communist, a true Marxist who, you know, murdered millions of people? Right? Is that an example? Of, you know, Marxism is a form of millennialism. It's clearly been interpreted and um, was influenced by um, Jewish and Christian thought um, in the way that there's a kind of, you know, capitalism reaches a point where it can't abide, it fails, and then we have a kind of proletariat millennialism afterwards. Um, you know, so the practice and belief is also a discussion I think we need to have uh, within this discussion. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to do small v violence to the conversation. Ah, right. And um, to return to the subject of time, okay. um, <laughs> we have been talking about this all day. We've, we could continue to talk about it all day, all evening, and we will be talking about it again tomorrow. Um, for the viewer and listener, I urge you to check out the other videos um, in the series of the papers from today and also our previous um, interviews on millennialism on uh, new religious movements, on violence, and these kind of issues. Other than that, I'd like to thank all of the participants for taking part, and uh, thanks for watching. Thanks has to go to Simon Robinson at Sensam and um, all of the video crew who were there um, and helped us make that episode. Um, something 
we enjoy doing, but the organisation required for video episodes is quite considerable. So, you know, it's an occasional thing rather than a regular thing. But um, I certainly enjoyed it. So I hope you did too. It's really good. Uh, so we've got another interview from Dan Gorman coming up next week. Um, he's speaking to uh, Laurie Maffley Kip on Jesuits, Mormons, and American religion in the world. So a sort of um, live religion take on um, Jesuits, Mormons. It's going to be fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and um, two topics again, not really covered on the RSP. We had Ryan Cragen on um, right back, maybe one or two years into the, uh, the RSP speaking on um, Mormonism and demographics in the US but this is really going to be the first time that we've had another interview there so I'm really excited about that. Yep, Dan doing great work a really uh, strong uh, contributor to the team If you would like to contribute to the RSP you can do so in various ways, you can do so by sharing our material across uh, social media you can do so by using our Amazon affiliate links at .co.uk.com and .ca. And you can do it through our uh, Patreon link, patreon.com backslash project RS, where you can leave a regular, a huge amount or a tiny little one-off payment and whatever you can afford to give to the project we appreciate enormously helps us to keep this ever-growing resource free for you to use and um, if you've already donated thanks so much and you can also contribute by emailing editors at religiousstudiesproject.com if you've got any feedback or any suggestions for things that we could be doing and commenting on the website Um, so you can also comment on social media but the website is there as a discussion forum so don't forget about that I think that's all we've got to say David no it's not quite Thanks for listening. Oh, sorry.